Good morning. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, sorry, I'm a few minutes late. I was making a cup of tea just to chill myself a bit. <sighs> Do you like the sound of that? Hmm. Feels like springtime, doesn't it? Uh, it was nice this morning to just see the sun shining and hear the birds singing. And even though the astronomers say that springtime does not begin for another three weeks, it feels like springtime to me and I am enjoying it. We are in Philippians chapter 2 today. We might take a break from Philippians next week and maybe give you a, a different voice to listen to next Sunday morning. But for now, we're going to continue on in, in Philippians 2. And this is a weighty, weighty theological passage of Scripture, verses 5 to 11. So are you ready for some weighty, weighty theology? No? Good, because I'm not going to do it. Because what I want to do is not run rings around people with weighty theology. I want to see what was Paul saying and why was he saying it. And the verses that I'm going to read, if you have your Bible open and you look at verses 5 to 11 or maybe more so 6 to 11, you will frequently hear verses 6 to 11 lifted out of Philippians and preached about and used for theological purposes, which of course they can, to make it very clear about who Jesus is, that Jesus is God. Um, you, you, will, you will get that done. But I want to know, Paul, why did you write it? And why did you write it in Philippians 2? Why is it where it is? So we're, we're going to just use a very simple little principle that I have for reading the Bible. Context is king. What is the context? What's going on before this? And in the next episode of Philippians, what's going on after this? Why did Paul put it here? He didn't just have a wee moment where he thought, oh, let's talk theology and then we'll get back to the real stuff. No, there's a reason that it is where it is. So I'm going to read, um, <clears throat> I'm actually going to read some of last week's passage as well as this week's passage, so that you get the context. So go back to 127, please. Chapter 1, verse 27 of Philippians. I'll read some of the end of chapter 1, and then I'm going to read into chapter 2. It says, or Paul says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Let's move on to the start of chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Hold that word. Having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now, verse 3, here's the evil twins from last week. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only, according to the NIV, incorrectly, as far as I'm aware from studying this out, each of you should look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing or poured himself out, as some of the older translations say. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, you've definitely heard the last half a dozen verses there many times read on their own. What I'm going to try really hard to do this morning is get them rammed into the context of what was going on last week and what's going on in the verses at the start of chapter 2. Last week, there were two problems. And one of the problems was external pressure for these Christians living in Philippi, in a Roman colony, surrounded by paganism, surrounded by people who were constantly saying, Caesar is Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. That was just a common phrase in Philippi, the worship of the emperor. And they had also a little bit of internal unrest going on within the church. There's a little bit of dissension, a little bit of disunity. Paul is calling for unity in phrases like, stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith. In phrases like, be like-minded, have the same love, be one in spirit and purpose. He's calling for unity. So the two problems that, that they have is, Outside pressure, and then a little bit of internal unrest. I don't think it was as ugly as as it can be, but there were certainly some um, differences between some of the, the Christians at Philippi. And then there were twin evils last week as well. There were two problems, and there were two evil twins uh, called selfish ambition, me first, and the other one was called vain conceit, which literally means empty glory thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. And Paul called last week for a shift in mindset. Change how you think. And this comes up in Philippians over and over again. Your mind, your thinking. You've got to get your thinking right. You've got to get your mindset right. In verse 2 he said, Make my joy complete by being like-minded thinking the same way, having the one sole driving purpose, which is the gospel from the end of chapter 1. And Paul's antidote to these pressures from outside and inside, his means of killing these evil twins, is, as always in Paul, same message every week, look to Jesus. Every single time. And you may remember from, I don't know, this is the fifth message now in Philippians. You may remember back to the first one where I explained what type of letter it is. If you don't remember, it's okay. But it's it's a merging of two types of letter from the ancient world. It is a letter of friendship. 
And we see the affectionate terms that he uses for his friends in chapter 1. And it is also a letter of moral exhortation. What does that mean? That means a letter encouraging you in how you live. And in these letters of moral exhortation in the ancient world, frequently an example was used in order to show people how they should live. And the example was normally the author of the letter. But Paul does something crazy here. And instead of using himself as the example, which he does in other places where he'll write, imitate me. Instead of using himself as the example, he uses Jesus as the example. And he's going to, in this letter of moral exhortation, he's going to hold up Jesus. Here is your example that you must hold to in your thinking. Look at verse 5. Your mindset, your attitude, your thinking should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Do not, for the love of everything that is good in the world, do not separate verse 6 from what's gone before it. Or you wreck what Paul is doing. You wreck it. He is saying, here's the ugly attitudes that cause division in every human relationship. Selfish ambition, me first. Vainglory, I'm more important than everybody else. I have an inflated opinion of myself. That leads to disunity and division in the church, in family, and in all contexts of human life. And Paul is is saying, against that, here's the mindset that you need to have. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus. If you rip these verses out of context and just do your fancy theology with them, you actually lose the demand that it places on our lives and as a church community in how we relate to one another. Don't do it. If you understand this passage, it is not so that you can run theological rings around people or prove who Jesus is. Jesus is God. This passage makes that clear, but it's not the primary intent. Primary intent is, if you understand this, I will see it working out in how you live in community. That's it. If you have this mindset that we're going to read about that Jesus had, then selfish ambition dies. Vainglory dies. And having a single-minded purpose, which is the gospel, and being united in love for one another, and showing the world around us what a colony, what a citizenship of heaven actually looks like, all of those things that we've looked at so far become a reality when we have this mind of Christ. Have you got the point, church? Don't lift verses out of context and theologize about them and say, "Mm, isn't this nice? Get it into your heart and into your lifestyle and into your relationships with one another in the church. So we're going to kill the evil twins. And to do that, Paul is going to emphasize a couple of things about Jesus. We read about Jesus, verse 6, being in very nature God. Now, we're referring to Jesus in this verse before he became flesh. We're referring to him who was in very nature God. We read historically about Jesus. We read in the Gospels about Jesus, but that was not the beginning of his existence. His existence had no beginning. He always was there with God, always. 
And then he became flesh in the incarnation. And we read about that in verse 8, being found in appearance like a man. So Paul's going to look at Jesus from two lenses. He's going to look at him from the lens of pre-existing with God before he became flesh. What, what was he like? What did he do? What was his mindset that we have to follow? And he's going to look at his incarnation becoming flesh, becoming man. And something I want to stress right from the outset, in case I lose anybody along the way, is that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He never left his divinity behind when he became flesh. I don't fully understand that, and I'm quite happy with that. I can't quite get my head around how he was fully God and fully man at the same time. But I believe passionately that that's what the Bible teaches. And therefore, whether I fully grasp it and can put it into nice, coherent explanation or not, I'm not bothered by that. I believe it. So whenever we read that he emptied himself, if you take verses 6 to 8 and just pull out sort of two key headings to... to Sort of stress what Paul is doing here. Verse 6, as God, he emptied himself. Pre-existent, before the incarnation, the moment of becoming flesh, as God, he emptied himself. That's what Jesus did. As God, he emptied himself. We'll look in a minute at what that means. And then in verse 8, as man, he humbled himself. So we've got these sort of two things that Paul is coming at us with about the mind of Christ. The attitude, and I'm going to continually go back to verse 5 and continually point back to the verses before it. This is the attitude we have to have, the attitude we see in Christ, if we're going to kill these wrong mindsets that destroy relationships in the church. As, ma- as God, he emptied himself. As man, He humbled himself. And Paul says in verse 6, he first of all says what Jesus didn't do. Who being in the very nature God, he was God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He did not, Jesus is not a grasping, selfish, self-centered being. He is not like Alexander the Great, whose father Philippi was named after, and no doubt the the citizens of Philippi knew an awful lot about Alexander the Great and his dad, Philip. He was not like the Caesar, Nero, Augustus, whoever it may have been. He was not like that. Jesus was not like these grasping, power-hungry, selfish, full-of-empty-glory people that the Philippians were used to. He was not like the gods that the ancient pagan nations worshipped. He was different. He was not a grasping, selfish, self-centered being. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, understand this. That does not mean that he gave up his equality with God. He never did that. What it means is he did not exploit it to his own advantage. He did not use his equality with God as something in order to to claim power, in order to have 
uh, take advantage of people. He did not grasp it to his own advantage. He had it. He never left it, but he didn't misuse it, which is what the devil tried to do with him in the, one of the temptations in the wilderness, to misuse the power of, the, of, of God and who he was. So God, or Jesus is not like these grasping, selfish leaders. And whenever we read then that he made himself nothing in verse 7, it literally says he emptied himself. And you can run down all sorts of rabbit holes about what that means. What did he empty himself of? The answer is he emptied himself of nothing. Don't start getting into arguments about what attributes or what characteristics of God did Jesus empty himself of. He didn't empty himself of any of them. What Paul is saying here is it's a metaphor and he's saying Jesus poured himself out. He did not pour out characteristics of God and no longer have those characteristics. No, the point is he poured himself out in love for people. He poured out himself. Have you ever heard about somebody pouring themselves into something? Maybe somebody says, I pour myself into my work. I pour myself into my ministry. I pour myself into my family. What that means is, it's, it's the illustration that comes from, I think, 1 Samuel, maybe about chapter 7 or 8. It's pouring a jug of water out on the ground. You don't get it back. It's that sense of, I am doing something that is irrevocable, irreversible. I am pouring myself out, not so that I will get something back. And Jesus did not empty himself of the attributes of God. He poured himself out in love for humanity. In fact, if we understand this right, I believe it's completely wrong to say what attributes of God did Jesus empty himself of. It's right, I believe, to say because he was God, because he was showing the world what the character of God is like, he emptied himself. He poured himself out in love and in sacrifice for others. It wasn't as if he stopped being God to do that. The fact that he did that showed what God is like. I really hope you get that. He did not stop being God and become man and then start being God again. He became man and as man showed us what he was like as God. He poured himself out for others, but he never stopped being divine. It's a revelation of the character of God. It is in stark contrast to all of the attitudes that the Philippians would have seen displayed by those in leadership. And not only does he empty himself, pour himself out, but it says he takes on the nature of, of a servant. Servant. Do we know our Old Testament? Because somebody talks about servant quite a lot. And it is Isaiah. And it is in those servant songs. There are four of them in the section of Isaiah 40 to 55. And when Paul says that Jesus although he was very nature God, did not grasp at it, but poured himself out and became a servant, the Jews hearing that are thinking, I know what he means. He means the servant of Isaiah. 
He means the servant of Isaiah 53, the one who bore our sins, our transgressions, our iniquities. That's what he means. He became a servant. And Jesus, in a, in a world that was just defined by power, he was showing a different side of power. He was showing what it meant to be truly human. He was showing the power of love. He could have called 12 legions of angels. He never lost the ability to do that. If he'd wanted to, he could have just clicked his fingers and 12 legions of angels were there in the Garden of Gethsemane to rescue him. He could have done that. He did not lay aside the ability to do that, but he chose not to. He chose instead not to grasp at his equality with God, but to pour himself out in love for others. As God, he emptied himself. And in verse 8, as man, he humbled himself. How did he humble himself? He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Obedient to death. Please don't misunderstand that. That does not mean death was shouting orders and that Jesus was obeying death's orders. That is not what it means. What it means, he was obedient to his father to the point of death. Death had no say in anything and has no authority and gives no commands to King Jesus. He was obedient to his father and to the will of his father, even to the point of having to die. And Paul then emphasizes that. And actually, if you want one phrase that's at the very heart of this, this poem, this, this marvelous half a dozen verses here from 6 to 11, the phrase that is from a literary point of view, at the very center of it is the phrase, even death on a cross. That's at the heart of the whole thing. Even death on a cross. Paul never left the cross. He never moved on. When you read his early letters, which were maybe written in the late 40s, early 50s AD, read something like 1 Corinthians 1, and you will see him glorying in the message of the cross, the strength and the power of God being made known in the weakness of the cross, the wisdom of God being made known in the foolishness of the cross. Way back in the late 40s, early 50s, he was obsessed with the cross. And now over a decade, probably later, writing from a prison in Rome to the church in Philippi, it has not changed. He is still where he has always been, the center of everything that God has done and the center of all of history is the cross of Christ. And it's at the center of this passage. Obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And these two sentences in verses 6 to 8, verses 6 and 7, one sentence. Verse 8, second sentence. These two sentences stand over against the horrible, selfish ambition and empty, vain glory, vain conceit of, of verse 3 of chapter 2. Instead of selfish ambition, grasping at stuff for yourself, the pre-existent Christ, who was always with God and always was God, he became flesh and instead of selfish ambition, poured himself out for others. Instead of the vain glory, the empty glory, which is what it literally means in verse 3, instead of empty glory, 
He, as a, as a man, as he became incarnate, he humbled himself. He emptied, verse 7, he emptied himself. Not empty glory, not thinking more highly of himself than he should have thought, but emptying himself for others. This is what God is like. Tom Wright brilliantly says, this is the confrontation of the love of power with the power of love. Verse 3 is about the love of power, selfish ambition, vain conceit. I will keep on saying those two things because those are the two things that wreck lives, relationships, churches, and they must die. They must. Those two things are about love of power. Alexander the Great was about love of power. Caesar was about the love of power. And the love of power destroys people. This is the confrontation of the love of power on one side with the power of love on the other side, which Jesus so exemplified as God, he emptied himself. And as man, he humbled himself. And when you, when you, when you take those two sentences, verses 6 to 8, and you just look at what frames them, Verse 6 says, being in very nature God. And then verse 8 ends with death on a cross. Just chew on that. Being in very nature God, even death on a cross. This is our God. There is no other. We need to stop trying to make God in our image and start actually living in the image of God. This is the mindset, verse 5. Have I quoted verse 5 already? I think I have. This is the mindset that we must have in our relationships. It must be at the center of our lives together. As the cross is at the center of this passage, it must be at the center of what it means to be a Christian community. You see, God is interested in us being reformed, in his image. He's not trying to populate heaven with as many individuals as possible. He wants a people who bear his image on the earth, who show the world around them what citizens of heaven actually look like. That's what God wants. That's why this passage is not theology to be played with. This is life to be lived. Let this mindset be in you that was in Jesus. This is to be lived. God is saying, Paul is saying, what we see in Jesus is to be then brought into our lives and into our communities so that the world can see what God is like. He wants people on the earth living in community in a way that shows people heaven shows them what citizenship in heaven actually looks like. And whenever we make evangelism and whenever we make Christianity so completely individualistic, it's just about me and Jesus, it's just about me getting saved and getting my ticket for heaven, I don't have to bother living in community with other people, whenever we do that, the world doesn't pay any attention to us because we're so 
selfish, still at the core. And even our motive sometimes for being Christians can be selfishness. I want to go to heaven. (laughs) When God says, I want a people who bear my image and live in community in this lifetime on this earth in a way that glorifies my name. We are image bearers. Adam was was a grasping being. Adam and Eve in the garden grasped selfishly at the desire to be like God. And Jesus, you read in Paul and other places, Jesus undid that. Jesus undid what Adam did. Jesus was the perfect son who put right the fall. The good news is that God is not like us. God is like Jesus. Whenever you read the Gospels, you'll get so much in, in John and you'll get it in the other Gospels as well. For example, Matthew 11. At the end of, of Matthew 11, Jesus says, verse 27, No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus shows us what God is like. I think sometimes what we do is we have our ideas of what God is like. Whenever we see things that Jesus does that disturbs us a little bit, like when he says to the religious guys in Matthew 23, you're full of dead stuff. God wouldn't do that. No, he did. He did. And we come out of backwards and we think, well, God is like this. I'd like God to be like this because that's what I'm like. And I'll try and get Jesus squeezed into my idea of what God is. And it's completely upside down. Paul says, you look at Jesus. And Jesus says, when you look at me, you will see God. There is no other God than this. There is no other God. This is who he is. And that's why I have repeatedly encouraged you that no matter what you use for daily reading, whether it's a podcast or an app or a devotional book, no matter what you use, if it does not already have incorporated into it somewhere something from the Gospels every day, then you add in something from the Gospels every day because Jesus shows you what God is like. And it's not good enough to only read that once or only read it once a year. You've got to have it absolutely saturating your being. Jesus shows me what God is like. As God, he emptied himself. As man, he humbled himself. Have this mindset in you and live it out in your relationships. This is our God, the servant king. That's how he's presented here, the servant king. He calls us now to follow him. Context is king. You're not meant to read this and say, oh, great, Jesus, good for you. It's nice to know that wee bit of theology. You're meant to live it. Maturity check, church maturity check. Am I living like this? 
in my relationships, whether that's in my family or in the church. And Paul is writing to the church. So primarily, I think he's addressing relationships in the church, but I think this overflows into all relationships. Do I have the mind of Christ? Do I have the mind of Christ? Do I think about other people around me? Or is it me first? I'm the most important one. Or do I pour myself out? Do I pour myself out? Do I humble myself and look to the needs of others more than me? Because when you do that, you'll have a community that the world will look at and say, my, this King Jesus must actually be worth having a look at. Look at his people. Maturity check. Are you there? Am I there? Or are we still making our decisions based on what we want and not how it affects the community of faith around us? Let me finish briefly with Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11. Paul isn't finished. Paul wants us to see that God has vindicated Jesus, that what Jesus did in emptying himself and in humbling himself and in becoming obedient to death on a cross, Paul doesn't want to leave it there because there's a verse in the Old Testament that talks about how he that hangs on a tree is cursed. Paul doesn't want anyone going away thinking, goodness, does this mean that Jesus is, is done with uh, and God's finished with him? Paul wants you to know now that God has completely vindicated what Jesus did by exalting him to the highest place. That's not somewhere geographically. What that means is he has no equal. I've been listening to that song again this week over and over you have no rival, you have no equal. Now and forever, Lord, you reign. He's been exalted to the highest place. And verse 9, given a name. I want to just tell you what the name is as we finish. And I am nearly there. The name. What is the name that God gave? Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. What is the name? Right. Just to make sure that I've got your attention, it's not Jesus. Okay? So if you're getting a bit sleepy, that's maybe waking you up a wee bit. You want to know why I said that. The name that God has given him is not Jesus. At the name of Jesus... That does not mean the name Jesus. It's the name that God has given to Jesus. And what is that name that God has given to Jesus? You see, Jesus was the name that, that Joseph gave to him, obeying the command of the angel to call him Jesus because he would save his people from his sins. Jesus was the name that this, this incarnate God had when he was born 2,000 years ago or whatever and lived 33 years on the earth. Jesus was his name. But what's the name that he has been given now? What is the name that whenever God exalted him to the highest place and vindicated what he had done by being obedient to death on a cross, what's the name that God gave him? Now, we need to just mosey for a few moments in the Old Testament to get this. But this is good. This is really good. I can still remember where I was standing in the garden years ago, listening to Gordon Fee teaching on Philippians on my, on my iPod. And I was outside. It was around this time of year, maybe a bit colder. I can remember I had a hat on. I think I might even have been doing some power hosing on the path. But I can remember 
listening to this for the first time and it just blew my mind. What is the name? Whenever you read in Exodus 3, God reveals himself to Moses. Moses says to God, who am I going to tell? Uh, when, when the people ask, who sent you? What am I going to say? And, and God gives him this phrase and says, I am who I am. Tell them that I am sent you. And that I am in Hebrew is Yahweh, Yahweh. And in Deuteronomy 6, whenever we read this, this phrase that the, the ancient Hebrew people and the Jews still would read today, the Shema, Shema or hear, O Israel, Yahweh Elohim is one. You shall love Yahweh your Elohim. That, this is the name by which God revealed his character to his people in the Old Testament, the name Yahweh. But there came a time in the history of God's people where they stopped using the name Yahweh because the third commandment says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. So what they did was to make absolutely certain that they did not break the third commandment and did not take the name of the Lord in vain, they stopped using it altogether. They did not use the word Yahweh, they did not write it and they did not pronounce it. They began to substitute about probably three or four hundred years before Jesus was incarnate, before he was born. They began to substitute a different Hebrew word, Adonai, instead of Yahweh. And whenever the Bible, stick with me, you've got to stick with me now, don't lose me. Whenever the Bible was translated into Greek in the second century BC, a group of guys translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek it was called the Septuagint. Uh, it's abbreviated LXX. If you ever read any theological books and you see LXX, it's referring to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, which is what Paul would have used quite a lot when he was writing his letters. And whenever these guys were translating Adonai into Greek, they used the word Kyrios, right? One of you knows that, knows that word better than others. But Kyrios is the name that in, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, everywhere that you would see Yahweh or Adonai, the Greek translators put in Kyrios, which means Lord. Kyrios. Kyrios. So the Greek text of the Shema says Kyrios is one, whereas the Hebrew scripture says Yahweh Elohim is one. The Greek version says Kyrios is one. Now, take this into Philippi, take it into the first century and into Paul's letter. You've got the Philippians who are living in a culture where they are constantly hearing people say Caesar is Kyrios. They were hearing it in Greek. They are in Greece, in Macedonia. They are in a, a Greek-speaking place and they are hearing Caesar is Kyrios again and again and again. And Paul plays on this because in the Old Testament, in Greek, Kyrios is the name that is used for God. And Paul says that God has given Jesus the name and the name he has given him is not the name Jesus. The name he has given him in verse 11 or verse 10, at the name 
that Jesus has been given the name, right? Capital N, at the name, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Kyrios. That's the name that he's been given. He has been given the same name used in the Greek Old Testament scriptures for God. God says in Isaiah that, that let's, let's read it in verse 42 so that I make sure that I get it right. He says that I am the Lord, that's my name, and I won't share my glory with another. Let me see. Verse 8 of Isaiah 42. Yeah, I am the Lord, that is my name. In Greek, what that says is, I am the Kyrios. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. But he gave it to Jesus because Jesus was always with him. Jesus was always God. He's not a bolt-on. He's not an additional member of the, of the Trinity brought in to help out. He was always there. And God has given him now the name that signifies who he always was, Lord. The name is Lord. The name is not Jesus. It is Lord. And Paul quotes Isaiah 45 a little bit later where it says in Isaiah 45, look at verse 22 of Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, God speaking, before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear, which got translated confess in the Greek. Every tongue will swear, they will say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. And Paul takes that and he applies it to Jesus. And he says, God has vindicated what he has done by exalting him to the highest place and giving him the name Kyrios. He is Lord. The name is Lord. The name is the name given to God in the Old Testament Kyrios. And you better believe that was an encouragement to the Philippian Christians because Paul is writing to these guys who are under pressure, who are feeling the strain, who are very much noticed when they're out and about and everybody else says, Kaiser Kyrios, Caesar is Kyrios, Caesar is Lord. Everybody else is saying that and Lydia's not saying it. And the guy that used to work in the jail but lost his job He's not saying it, and Yodia and Syntyche are not saying it, and they're being noticed because they're not saying it. And Paul says, stand firm, church, because a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, even Nero's knee, even Nero's tongue. He will bow and he will confess and what it literally says in Greek is, he will confess. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christos is Kyrios. That Jesus, or in fact, I've got that the wrong way around, so I'm going to do it again. It says, Kyrios is Jesus Christos. 
says, Lord, every knee, every tongue will confess that Lord is not Caesar, who's oppressing you, but Jesus. Church, take encouragement and stand firm that even Caesar's knee will have to bow to the Lord, the true Kyrios and the true Savior. That will eventually happen. You're going to do it someday. If you've never bowed the knee, and this is not a threat, this is an invitation. If you've never bowed the knee and you've never confessed that Jesus is Kyrios, that he is the Lord, you will do that someday. You will. Everyone will. Better to do it now. And our mission, church, and with this I close. Close the Bible just to let you know. Our mission as a church is to have that mindset of Christ within us and to live in a way in our relationships, backing this all up. If Jesus Christ is Lord, and if we have the mindset of emptying ourselves for others, of humbling ourselves and looking to the needs of others first, back it up further. If we have that mindset that selfish ambition and vain empty glory cannot survive, and we are like-minded, focused on the gospel, contending, united, living as citizens of heaven, the world around will look in and more people will be inclined to bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord now rather than it having to be forced on them in the future. Do you see the responsibility? Stop playing theology and start following Jesus and allowing his example to be lived out in our lives and in our relationships. He is Lord. That is his name. God bless you. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it's helped. Um, let me just pray and then vanish. Father, thank you for this incredible truth. Incredible truth. Lord, let it not stop as just being truth that we walk away from. Let it go deep, deep within our hearts, within our minds. May our thinking be changed, Jesus. And by the power of the Spirit, may we follow your example in our relationships with each other so that the world may see and that you may be confessed as Lord by many, many people. We love you. We thank you. Just bless your church today, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. See you soon on Zoom. God bless you. Have a great week. Bye.